0: Hey, everybody. It's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. On this week's episode, I welcome back film producer, author, and fellow music nerd Matt Berenson for a chat on the writer and actor strikes, the genius of David Berman, and a look at how we seem to be stuck in a bit of a fallow cultural period. Let's get into it. Here we go. What's up, everybody? It is your host, Maddie C. It is so wonderful to be back here. Here we are again, back where we began on a Monday. It's good to be back. Thanks so much for your patience. Well, it took me a minute to uh, get back to a regular schedule. Things have been super busy with uh, many, many things in my life. Maybe most excitingly and most notably, I just got back from a four-day festival called Bourbon and Beyond it is a four day event that takes place in Louisville, Kentucky. I got to see Duran Duran, Blondie Spoon, the Avet Brothers, First Aid Kit, uh, let's see, the Black Crows, Bastille, Hosier, a whole bunch more. Uh, I'm going to have a whole bunch of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a whole bunch of stuff coming out in detail on that next week. I've got a big piece coming out. Uh, I got to do this because of maximum generosity, uh, a true theme that continues to exist throughout the journey that i'm on right now i keep uh sort of falling into amazing stuff and i'm not gonna say no to it but i will continue to be humbled by it and grateful for it so be sure to check out that next week when it comes along uh my tour plans are moving slowly uh but surely uh you may not be aware uh if you haven't been paying attention i am headed back out on a solo summer excuse me i just went on a solo summer tour i'm headed out on a solo winter tour this one is pretty lengthy, folks. I will be out on the road for something like six weeks, and I will be driving all the way down to Florida, then all the way across the country out to the Pacific, up to the Pacific Northwest, and back again to beautiful Michigan. So if you are out there and you are interested in seeing Maddie C. along the way, and you want to help me put a show together, go over to FUNA4Records.com slash Matthew Carlson or phono slash house shows and let's hook up. Let's see if we can find your place, a friend's house, a coffee shop, a bar, a restaurant, a cafe, something that we can do to put a show together with maybe twenty or thirty of your best friends. And um, you know, let's let's have a party. Uh, I'm so excited to get out uh in, in the country, across the country and see so many of you. And there were so many of you who were interested in hosting when I went out on my on my tour, and uh, you were just too far west and too far away. And so we're, we're we're getting to go to some new places, and I'm really really excited about that. I'm gonna get to play in states that I've not only never played in before. I'm gonna I'm gonna play in states I've never even been to before. Um, this is gonna be a really incredible experience, and I'm I'm really super super excited about it. Um, we had a busy week here again at uh, at the old what am I making Substack. Uh, I looked back and I think, um, I don't know if it was Thursday or Friday marked 30 consecutive days of posting an article every day. And that may seem like too much to you. I don't know. Um, but I'm really proud of it. I think I've been able to keep up not only a really impressive pace, but also to do really good work. And I'm I'm really excited about it. And this week was no exception. So here's just a quick rundown of of what happened. If you didn't get a chance to read any or all of these, and you want to go back, this is a good way to get kind of a a, a refresher. <clears throat> so Monday, I, uh, I I published the last update from my my summer tour. I discussed my drive home, my experience on the road, what I learned, what I thought, and what it was like to get home. Um, and then on Tuesday, I got I got vulnerable, kind of about where I am now. Now the tour is over. Now that I've officially left my job, <clears throat> money's a major concern, and so I kind of was honest about some of my financial challenges and some of the things going on in my life. And it was a way for me to sort of say, "Hey, listen, it's this is why it's really crucial for you to, to support what I'm doing here with a paid subscription." And we'll we'll talk about that again here in a minute. Um, on Wednesday, I took a deep dive into the first four Luna records. Now, Luna's a band that I've loved a long time. And it's a band that Dean Wareham put together out of the ashes of the breakup of Galaxy 500, another band that I like very much. And uh, this is a band that I think doesn't, Luna, doesn't get the the due that it deserves. I think it's often sort of uh, given sort of uh, short shrift, if you will. And um, I think it's just a really, I think it's a great band. I think those first four records are really, really, really good. And I think they're just a terrific American outfit that that too few people are really kind of valuing for, for what they've done and who they are. They've created their own sound. So make sure you go back and and check that article out. I'm particularly proud of that one. Um, on Thursday, I uh, put together just a, a quick list of four of my favorite records that I tend to to gravitate to in the autumn. And I posted some YouTube clips to kind of support those. And, and I sent out a, uh, a query and I said, hey, what are your fall records? And boy, did you guys deliver. We had... A whole ton, a whole slew of comments coming in, people talking with each other. Please keep that up. Even if the post is a few days old, like that rock band ABC's post went went kind of crazy in terms of comparing it to, to other stuff that I've, that I've published here. And that, that got a lot of traction really quickly. I want people to get involved. So if there's something that's engaging that you like, please not only comment on what I ask or even respond to what I comment. Take a look around and comment with each other. You're going to get to know some cool people. Again, part of what we're trying to do here is build a community. And then on Friday, I've been working on this piece a long time. Uh, It took me weeks and weeks of editing to get it to where I wanted it to be. And um, I I finally got it to a point where I felt like I could share it. It's a a piece that I wrote about uh, my really troubled relationship with the film Gone with the Wind, where it sits sort of, excuse me, in my family canon and uh, sort of the the propaganda that exists within the film. And that, you know, can't really be, it, it just can't be erased from our society. And so we have to reckon with it. And it doesn't mean that we ban it. It doesn't mean that we tear it down. It means that we have to show it in a way that we contextualize what it is and that we're honest about what it was. I grew up believing that this film was simply a cinematic masterpiece that I didn't like, that I didn't get. That had a viewpoint that i didn't agree with and now i think i've made a pretty compelling argument that it it is actively racist propaganda and i hope you'll go read the piece and check it out and i hope you'll comment on it and i hope we can have a conversation about it i certainly get uncomfortable when talking about race uh as a white person who is maybe a little more attuned to the actual history of this country than maybe some people want to be um but I felt like this was really important because I was able to write it from the perspective of my experience with a film and my experience with my family and a film. And I really, I'm, I'm particularly, I'm always proud of what I write, but this one particularly, uh, really came from a a special and complicated place. And I really hope you'll take the time to read it. I'm really, really proud of it. And I, I I think it's, I, I hope it will generate an interesting discussion. Um, it's an important film, but it's a film with a lot of really inherent, awful awful problems in it um as i started to mention earlier when i talked about the, the the why i had to leave piece which i published on tuesday this show is powered by your financial support so please go sign up for a paid subscription today at am if you're already a member please consider a gift subscription make sure that you are uh writing reviews and rating and liking this pod wherever you can That really helps to uh, grow our audience. So if you would simply just go in and click the little five-star thing and maybe give it a thumbs up, write a couple sentences in whatever pod thing you listen to. Just say, you know, hey, Maddie has cool guests. Or just As long as it's something positive and you give us a good review, the more that you can interact with that, the more that this will get in front of the ears and eyeballs of listeners who might enjoy what we do. Um, I want you to get involved. Make sure you go over and uh, there's a couple different ways for you to communicate with us. Maybe that's answering a question I asked in one of the blogs. Maybe it's bringing up something you think I should be talking about here on the pod or writing about on the blog. So there's a couple different ways you can do that. You can go over to speakpipe.com/ what am I making and you can leave me a good old-fashioned voice message. If it's really good and really compelling, I'll play it on the show. So go ahead and leave that over there. Maybe you'll get yourself on a, on a, on a good old-fashioned podcast. The other thing you can do is you can just send me an email at blog. That's blog? at gmail.com. Just send me a note. Let me know what you think. I'm, I welcome comments, questions, guest ideas, recipes, whatever you got. Uh, again, like, rate, review. It really, really does help. Now, let's get on to the meat and potatoes. My guest and my virtual friend and I hope my real friend, <clears throat> Matt Berenson. Now, the first time I invited Matt on the pod, I was desperate to talk to him about his book, Secret Stars, The Great Underdogs of the Rock and Roll Era. I had read the book uh, when I was in Morocco. I read it on planes and buses and uh, fell in love with it. I been it, it had been gifted to me just a couple of weeks earlier by my dear friend Todd Stonehouse. And in the book, Matt runs down 10 of the what he thinks are the, the greatest secret stars in the history of rock and roll. And he talks about people that I love dearly like Elliot Smith and Robert Pollard and Robin Hitchcock, among others. And for this installment, I wanted to talk about a secret star not included in Barron's book, and and that's David Berman of Silver Jews. I also wanted to give Matt's perspective as a producer on the writers and actor strikes and how they're affecting his day-to-day life and the work that he does. And although I met Matt just a few months ago and only virtually met him for the record, Sitting down with him again felt like chatting with an old friend. We bounced from Hollywood to indie rock to Forgotten Geniuses and so much more. Matt helps to provide some important context to the way that the business of show works these days. We discuss the sad truth that companies like Netflix and Spotify are just tech companies that are a delivery system business. They simply deliver content. They're in the business of making money, not art. It's not just that this greedy view of content is bad for the creators of what we watch and listen to. It's also bad for the lovers of film and television and music. As art becomes more and more of a commodity, more of content, if you will, it becomes less and less worth spending time on, and as a result becomes less and less valuable and less and less enjoyable. If we continue like this, it is likely to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. In the end, though, Matt and I are both still hopeful about the future of art and film and music, but it's just as likely for the genius works to come out of nowhere these days as they are to arrive through the usual channels. So grab a drink, settle in, and let's get into it. Here's me and my guest, author and film producer, Matt Berenson. Enjoy. Enjoy. face
1: not bad a little stressful right now because i started um teaching a film class at lmu a couple weeks ago and it looks like the strike is coming to an end which is great news of course um but starting to get really busy again on my projects everybody's you know uh, scrambling now to figure out you know what they're going to go out with what they're going to sell after the strike ends what
0: um what is the status of the strike and how close are we
1: Yesterday, uh, there was a breakthrough where the heads of the studios came to the meeting with the head of the writers guild. Um, So not the actors but the writers, and it went well enough that they're meeting again today with the studio head still in the room so they must be getting somewhere I mean this is the closest for sure since it started almost 150 days ago. (laughs) Okay,
0: how. um how does that strike affect you as an independent producer? What is that? I mean, obviously work completely shuts down, but, but just in terms (laughs) of like momentum and inertia, I mean, we learned enough during COVID, like you can't stop building microchips or stop building SUVs and then turn right around and start building them again. Right. Um, um, You know, so tell me a little bit what that landscape looks like, both as, as work was kind of coming to a halt and what it will take to get going again.
1: Well, um, direct the directors didn't go on strike much to everyone's chagrin. If everybody had been completely aligned, the industry would have shut down even more. I mean, all the projects that were in post-production would have shut down as well. Um, but, and no independent films could have been made, really. Uh, some, I guess, still could have. Uh, but at any rate, so... What producers have been able to do during the strike is send out scripts that were already finished before the strike to directors and try to get directors attached to their script. That was pretty much all you could do. Um, Actors weren't reading um, mostly. So now as things ramp up again, Um, and people reopen for business, which is far from a done deal. I mean, you know, it it may happen this week or next, which would be great. Everybody's really eager to get back to work. Then what it'll look like is buyers will be very much open for business. Movies that were put on hold, many of them will go into production. Some of them will be scrapped. The studio will have had a chance to like really look at everything they were about to make. And they might second guess some of the things they were going to make. Um, but they all need movies uh, for next year and beyond. Um, there are a lot of movies that move from this year to next year to help fill some of those gaps. But, you know, uh, people will notice there will be fewer movies next year and in 2025 than there would have been, for sure. You can't have... And,
0: and I'm, I'm assuming you'll notice the same thing as it relates to sort of streaming and the, and the television angle of that. Yeah, you'll
1: see the- oh. Absolutely. You know, Netflix won't be dropping a new series every week. <laughs> you know, yeah. there, um, there, there'll be a period of time where they just won't have that.
0: Uh, as as somebody who, you know, makes movies and has to think about, you know, whether or not they're profitable and, and they can be sold, um, how do you... How do you sort of navigate all this? And I'm not asking you to like pick a side or go, I'm for the man or whatever. Like, <laughs> but there's a but there's a real like there's a real life uh, ebb and flow to it that you have to sort of like somehow navigate when you're in the position that you're in. And I'm really interested, kind of the the way in which you sort of have to do that.
1: Look, producers have been getting squeezed in the movie business over the last decade anyway, so it's been harder and harder to make a living, and when a strike happens and you can't make a living, you realize that the business, part of why the strike is so necessary and why there has to be a new industry on the other side of it, more or less, is because... If you create a scenario where only kids with trust funds can afford to be screenwriters or can afford to try having a career in acting or producing, the business will die. Um, uh, And so, you you know, I'm lucky that I've had enough success in my career up to now that I can weather a five month strike. Um, It, you know, I haven't enjoyed it. And you go through your savings, and you know, and when you've got two kids in college, that's no fun. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm luckier than a lot of other people I know. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 the movie business is harder than it's ever been. I mean, the entertainment industry really, because writers and actors and producers have gotten squeezed more than ever before in the history really of the, of the industry. And is that
0: Uh, largely a result of, of, You know, I mean, you know, for those people who don't know, and I'm certainly not an insider, but I know enough to know that, you know, there used to be a system where we used to have a quote unquote studio system where (laughs) there were studios that they were essentially the lock, stock and barrel production thing from cradle to grave. So they would go out and they would find new scripts and then they would find new talent. They would find new directors and they would groom them and, um, you know, build them up into stars. Yep. And and then they would produce work for those stars. And so you would have, you would make a picture for Betty Davis or you would make a picture for Jimmy Stewart, hmm. you know, and then in the 70s, that kind of in the 60s, really, but really in the 70s was when you sort of saw it blew up, right? So that blown up. Now you're in a position where you're an independent producer and there's a company that claims to be a production company, that claims to be a movie company, and they're really just a tech company or, an oil company, in some cases, you know, yeah. um, we've been through that, right? Yeah. Um, so you're kind of a middleman who's trying to do what a studio used to do, completely, right? Am yeah. I, am I, am I reading that right, Matt?
1: Sort of. Um... You know, the, the problem is that, you know, going to your original question of kind of why producers and writers and actors are getting squeezed more than ever before, it it definitely goes more to your tech company thing. You know, all you need to know to understand the difference between what a tech company making film and television means versus what the old studio system was is that they don't even call them films or television? They call it content,
0: uh-huh. they, <laughs> and they, that is telling language, is it not?
1: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, None essentially, us, what they're
0: saying is, we're yeah. just look, we're just moving widgets here.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's you know, they're not movie and TV companies. They, they content they can justify under the umbrella of tech of being a tech company at oh yeah a tech company can make content can't make films or television but we can make content you know it's in very I, much
0: the same way that that facebook can provide all kinds of information from quote unquote news sources but it's not news it's just entertainment
1: yeah or or you know on TikTok, what you see on TikTok, that's content and right. so the tech companies just understand film and television is just a version of what you see on TikTok, when of course it's really not. Um, no. yeah, <laughs> you know no. when you see on TikTok, content is a good word for it. You know, it's content just is a great word for it, and some yeah. of it's
0: some of it's okay, some of it's good sure. content. And sure, A lot of a lot of it's garbage. Yeah. Um, what I what I kind of am troubled by, I guess, is that I, as a musician and you as a film producer, and I'm sort of looking at the different ways that the technology and tech companies are kind of overtaking our delivery system. So whether it's rideshare, or a food delivery service, or movies, or music, or, you know, I'm sure literature is the next thing with AI. Um, You know, so you get to this point where it's like, we're not, what we are paying for we're, we're not paying for the thing we love the thing we want we're not paying for the food the record the movie we're paying for somebody to get it to us <laughs> that's all a, we're doing yeah. is just we are just creating massive billionaire companies out of delivery services yeah whether it's facebook or twitter or uh uber eats
1: yeah <laughs> that's that's uh an interesting way of looking at it yeah everything is just a delivery system yeah Uh, and it doesn't really matter what's being delivered uh no as long as you have
0: something to deliver that you can get people to pay for and then you can underpay this other person to give it to you yes you know you can drive down you know we've all heard the stories about you know uber eats and grubhub they they basically go yeah we'll let you be on our thing but you've got to charge lower prices so that we can take a cut so again you're not paying for your pizza you're paying for uber eats to get it to you and the local restaurant tour is just screwed; they're hosed. Yeah, and then that becomes the way in which most people get food, and so even if you had your own independent delivery service, now it's obsolete. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know. So my question is, um, as we kind of go down this road, obviously, it t- to me it seems we're going to have a new sort of independent film and television. There almost has to be, right? Like there has to be the, the lower costs of production without having to you know develop actual film and things. And the, and the digital delivery system will allow that to happen. Is that possible and is it sustainable? Is there a way to do an offshoot? You know, is there a way to have another early
1: 90s? Well, there's been a lot of talk about that or another United Artists, you know, people, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are kind of doing it, right? I mean, Artist Equity is a company where the idea is nobody gets paid a lot of money up front, but everybody has an ownership stake in it. So if it's successful, it's almost like the artists are the, uh, it, it's it's artist owned. It's right. you know, including it's Matt It's the same
0: concept as an employee owned company.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I you know I I, I guess you know c- c- certainly um, similar. So like Matt and Ben are trying it. I think A twenty four has done a really good job e- even before all this nonsense. Like ten years ago, they recognized there were big problems in the industry that were only going to get worse, and they've just managed to work completely outside of it in a way that's kind of remarkable. Starting their own financing and distribution entity that's making the kind of movies that none of the tech companies or streaming entities or even uh, traditional studios would ever have made. And, and they're the better other- and more successful or more profitable, I should say. They're often better and often more profitable than the average thing coming out from any of the other places.
0: And they're much more, I hesitate to say this, but like they have a brand there is a group of people, a large group of cinephiles out there who basically will almost green light in their heads anything that has that logo on it. So if, if yep. it's an A24 thing, they're willing to go plunk money down at the Cineplex to go see it if it's yep. available in the
1: area. It's a very rare thing. I remember when I first started out in the movie business so many years ago. The only equivalent thing to A24 where I feel like film lovers would go see any movie that that company released was Orion. Remember Orion? I do. I
0: sure do. Yeah.
1: Right. Because they, you know, they had Silence of the Lambs and Dances with Wolves. They won Best Picture like two years in a row or something. And they just seem to have kind of the magic touch of like commercial and quality. Um, That's one example. There's probably, oh, I guess you know, we dare not mention his name, but, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein for a while. Yeah, I
0: mean, Miramax did do a thing for a bit. Um,
1: for sure. And then, you, you know, know, that was a big part of what was cool about the 90s, for sure. Correct.
0: Um, and, I, and you, you hate to, to wax nostalgic too much about a particular time period. So whether it's the 70s or the 90s, but it does kind of seem like it's been a minute since we had a sort of a new American film revolution. And I, I wonder how much of that is due to technology
1: yeah look, a a lot of it for sure is the rise of streaming, the death of the DVD market, the you know, uh, um just the changing economics of the uh, of, of the business. Um, you know, David Byrne, you know, you and I like to cross pollinate film and film and music, and you know Always. Um, if you ever read David Byrne's book uh what is music or I, I I can't remember what it's called it's a it's a great book though, one of the most interesting things in that book that I've never forgotten is the idea that music changes as the delivery systems for music change. Like the actual music itself changes as a result of the delivery system. And a great example of that, there was an article recently how uh, streaming works that way um, in the sense that songs are now written in a totally different way where songs have to start with the chorus now. You don't start with the verse anymore. You have to give the listener at least a little taste of the chorus or they won't keep listening to the song. So the recording artists have noticed that, that like the the way streaming works, people will click on a song and if they don't kind of like it right away, they won't wait a minute for a kick-ass chorus to kick in. You know, wow. they, 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 need the, they need the hook right up front. And so that's a great example of David Burns thing and i think it applies to in film the kind of stories that are told and the way they're told netflix requires creators of series in the first 5 minutes to have something huge happen that grabs the audience because they want they don't want people clicking on the first step, you know the pilot of the show right. and you know 15 minutes in being like oh, i'm out they need you know some massive thing to happen or you know maybe you know a murder uh, whatever it is and so storytelling has changed because of the way netflix works and the way like clicking you know how many it's not just about how many clicks it's how long uh, the subscriber stays with it because that tells them and how net, the subscriber and it's fascinating likes the that content
0: netflix, it's fascinating that net i didn't mean to cut you off but yeah. it's fascinating that netflix uses this as such a driver but then refuses to share those statistics with anybody else
1: yeah well they right? refuse so to were to these
0: decisions but based upon this rubric but you don't get to see the rubric
1: yeah, well, they're making the decisions based on presumably what they do see, which is that most of the content content uh they put on their platform, uh, um, you know, all those, it's just tech shit, right? So, so um uh they do care about whether not just how many people start watching their show or movie how many people finish it and i'm sure they do notice that like oh if you don't grab them in the first five minutes you know they'll try something else we've got so much content up they'll just go to something that grabs them faster which is just an awful way to think about it what you're talking about is a little different which is they don't want to share their streaming numbers and pay residuals based on you know Oh, a uh, hundred million people watched your show. You should probably participate, you know. In, right, in like that. we all Whereas heard it's One million the, people, yeah. yeah that,
0: that woman that wrote two or three episodes of Bridgerton, which for three months was the biggest thing in streaming.
1: Yeah, and, and didn't get health care, yeah.
0: Didn't get health care and made like $31,000. Yes, total.
1: yeah, yep, insane, totally insane. Prim- so, except Bridgerton is successful, what I was going to say is they don't want to share the streaming numbers with the creators and with the community at large, because then people will discover that 90% of the stuff that Netflix makes, nobody watches. Basically nobody. It's a statistical rounding error who watches. You, You know, they do have some legitimate hits. I'm sure they have you know a dozen things in any given year in film and television that are legitimate hits that are actually part of the cultural conversation and that you know people are actually watching they want you to believe they have dozens and dozens because that justifies the 15 billion dollars a year they spend on content and the truth is nobody can watch that much content you know there's no
0: content that they're making is not for i don't think a representative chunk of their subscriber base. Unless 80% of their subscriber base is 18 to 32. And I doubt that it is.
1: Yeah. They've definitely had some success with YA stuff. So it's not just 18 to 32. It's like, you know, 13 to 25 is a big, like there's a lot of stuff that's done well in that space for them. I know. Cause they make sequels of it and, um, you know, the people who make it make money, and they wouldn't be paying those people real money if the shows were right. actually performing. So those are, you know, among them. I'm not just talking about 13 reasons why, but like um, you know, uh to all the boys I've loved before, or whatever, and the um that there's a few where they've made like, you know, three three of them um that are things you and I wouldn't watch but but that do have an audience and and so yeah they definitely you know since they have access to their data certainly I've got to believe whatever they're set whatever they're pursuing more of is what they think is working the problem is then you make too much of that and then it stops working and then it's something else that's working and you just you know the goalpost keeps moving well, and again,
0: because you're not really creating anything, you're just delivering things, you're always kind of behind the curve. Yeah. Which which is why I sort of feel like if they were a little more and it's you know, it's easy to armchair quarterback, right? But like yeah. it just sort of seems like if you were a little more deliberate and a little more conscious about creating some good things as opposed to just what can we find that's a that's a tent pole, you know. Yeah, like if you had I don't know, I, I just feel like if there was this sustainable delivery system up until the early 2000s for indie and art house film, and people love A24 like we were talking about earlier, you know, HBO didn't sign that deal for nothing. Yep. You know, I mean, they, they knew what they were doing, or at least they thought they knew what they were doing. There is a market there for grown-up, I mean, look at the look at the popularity of Yellowstone. Like, yeah, clearly... There are I mean, like that does not appeal to me. But that's the kind of stuff that there's an audience for, and they all run to that because that's the only option. Yep. You know, like I remember when I remember when Netflix bought Longmire. You know that show? Yep. A modern western kind of a thing. And that was clearly to get like the, you know, NCIS crowd, you know. So I just it's it it's just so it's sad to see people have so much money and so much control to create something in the culture. And they're basically just waiting for somebody else to tell them what to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or or like even worse than that. You know, it's so cynical when like, I don't mean to pick on Amazon. They're certainly not the worst, but it's like the idea that you know, they were looking for something to be their Game of Thrones, right? I think it was sort of a mandate that was passed down from above at Amazon to the people they hired. Find our Game of Thrones, you know, whatever it is. You know, Apple tried with Foundation. I don't know how many people are watching it, but it's pretty cool. You know, at least they tried and it's big budget and nobody had ever adapted Foundation before. So good for them for at least trying, you know, taking classic science fiction books and trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah. For a contemporary audience. Amazon instead decided to remake Lord of the Rings. Like we just right. saw that. We all grew like you know, young adults not only grew that, up but on you that, got, we saw it in our 30s or 40s or whatever. It's like we just saw it. You know, it's it's nobody it's wants definitive. to see nine hours of yeah, and it's definitive. You'll never talk it. Ever. You know, one picture you know, um,
0: the last one. Yeah. Yeah, you're wasting your time. It's not my thing, but you're wasting your time and money.
1: Yeah, you know, you might as well. You might as well go. All right, you know what? We need.
0: We need a musical. Let's do. Um, let's remake The Wizard of Oz. Like that's. It's just all you're gonna do is upset people.
1: Yeah. By the way, that's a whole other thing I have an issue with, which is don't remake classics. Now I know you mean that. It Lord of the Rings is kind of an example of that, but I meant it in a different way. It's like, no, no, no. When they told you to find another game of thrones Game another if you look at what game of thrones is game of thrones wasn't a remake of game of thrones it was the first time someone was making game of thrones you have to go out there and find a series of books or something some ip out there a big manga thing you know uh it's not for me and it wasn't made for me but like at least netflix you know, took a Japanese manga thing recently. There's something called One Piece on Netflix that apparently millions of people are watching. I don't know, but they already greenlit it for season two. And at least that is based on a Japanese manga thing. It has not been adapted for the Western world before. They kind of reinvented it for, for you know, English language audiences and, and Western audiences mostly, although I I suppose it could play anywhere. And it's just like, you know, a pirate chasing treasure, pirates chasing treasure kind of storyline or whatever. But at least no one had actually filmed that before. Was so, that um, was
0: that also the case with Squid Game?
1: Uh, Squid Game, look, Squid Game, I can't remember if Squid Game was a remake of an original Korean thing or whether they just bought the Korean format and actually aired it on... Okay. I did not
0: watch it. I just know that was, that seemed at least in my world to be a genuine hit.
1: Yeah. Like I I saw people
0: writing about it and and talking about it in a way that it clearly broke through into the culture. And
1: and it's like a fresh thing. You know what I mean? It's a little bit hunger games. Like it's, you know, I only watched the first few episodes, but it, you know, just to kind of see what it was. And I can't remember whether that was something that was like, made in Korea and just purchased to air on Netflix. Or was it Apple Netflix, right? Um, I think Netflix. Yeah, that was on Netflix, I think. Yeah, Netflix thing. Or whether I I I can't remember, but at any rate, yes, you know, it was for for you and I and everyone we know, they had never seen that before. It was a an original thing and it was a so it's it's there's a little bit of throw it against the wall and see what sticks, you know. Yeah, I the mean, humans... there's
0: there is some of that too. Like when you have that kind of clout and you have that kind of ubiquity, um, sooner or later you're going to hit upon something, even by accident. It's so, the you know blind squirrel and the acorn, stopped clock, and all those <laughs> analogies. You know.
1: Yes, yes. Yep, um, <laughs>
0: you know, the stop, the stop, blind squirrel. That, that one. Yeah,
1: right. Stop, the blind squirrel. Yeah. Um, you
0: brought up. An interesting you, you made an interesting comment on my 13 films to get to know me that I that I wanted to discuss. And that was that you were surprised that I hadn't included more 21st century films. And I don't know if you saw my
1: response. I had just started to read it and something happened and you oh, no worse. And it. it's not that I don't love 21st century films, is that like none rise to this, you know, level or something. I didn't I didn't finish your comment essentially
0: what i was saying was you know the, the in the mood for love is the most recent of those films and i watched that when i, I mean that film came out when i was in like, 28 uh-huh. and i just think for me it's hard as much as i love these new films as much as like i love "Inglorious glorious bastards which is one of the films you mentioned right Yep, just a film that i absolutely adore and Incredible, have seen
1: right yeah. a
0: dozen times since it came out yep like that's not gonna have the same Sort of foundational impact on me when I see that at 35 that um, Raiders of the Lost Ark has on me at 11, right? It's those kinds of things. So it was more about it was more about hey, get to know me as a person than. What is representative of the you know history of film or anything? Right,
1: right? These are the movies that shaped, me. yeah thing yeah. I see, I see. yeah. that's interesting, although th- this opens up another uh, Pandora's box of conversation. You and I never run out of things to talk about, you know, which is for most people as as you and I know, and we're the exceptions that prove the rule, You love what you love growing up musically, right? There's music that just is the soundtrack of your life when you're a teenager and into your early 20s. But most people, certainly by the time they're 30, stop listening to new music. They just love what they love. They had about 15, 20 years of new stuff they listened to. They digested and they went back and, you know, found the Neil Youngs and Dylans and whatever songwriters they liked from the past. And that's it. They've got about 100 artists they listen to, and then they shut the door behind them. And I you think for those, I people, are, yeah. what
0: I have noticed is that that, um, and I didn't mean to like stop your role, Yeah. <laughs> but those people are willing to get excited about something new, but they're not going to go seek it out. Yes. If it land, lands in their lap, great. Yeah. So if I've you jump this, up I'm, and down I'm on the desk, and say, I found keys. The door yeah. days are over. Right. Yeah like i'm yes. just gonna i'm just gonna sit here on the beach and wait for it to float
1: by right i'm i'm through exploring i don't have to, i either don't have time to cuz i'm busy in my career or whatever whatever it is sure or right. family you know certainly young kids get in the way of that kind of stuff it's harder to Absolutely. keep up when your kids are really little you know so i i get it i get if you even take a 5 year break when you you have like two kids under 5 or whatever it's just a very hard time to be digesting as much new film and music and all that stuff but uh it's interesting because i understand what you're saying now about your list i loved your film list by the way of those those 13 Thank you. films um a uh, really interesting list and and you know some overlapped with things i i would have picked and and others were just like oh how cool like breaker morant i remember seeing that in the theater when i was young and i might have seen it once more like a few years later but it's been 25 years since i've seen that i'm going to go back and watch it because it was Man, un-
0: it- when yeah. pressed in when pressed at a cocktail party what's your favorite film of all time that's my answer
1: oh wow interesting yeah. um because I, because it's also boring it's the godfather for me i can it's, just well never pick okay but, but i could also
0: answer that with all sincerity and yeah. i could say that about probably four other films right and the, and the truth of the matter is that if i answer breaker morant it's a way for me to honor a film that no one knows about
1: right and it makes it, them go it, see it yeah
0: at, yeah and I mean, it's, a, it, it's, a, whatever. it's a way for me to go, oh, let me tell you. And then all of a sudden somebody's got a little treat. Um, You know, not that people are running around constantly asking me for my favorite film, but when it happens,
1: yeah. that's my answer. Circling back though to the, the I was going to make a film comparison with music that like I know you're as interested in new music as I am. You keep up and you listen, you know, and you do lists at the end of the year of your favorite stuff and all that. But it sounds like for whatever reason, you film doesn't have, you still love films. You still fall in love with new films, but they don't have I quite do. the same impact on you as the films that turned you into a film lover in the first place. And I, I think, think that's for true. me film and I don't know. I'd have to really take a step back and ask myself honestly, whether maybe it's cause I work in film, Which can work for or against new film. You know, sometimes people who work in the music business can't stand new music because they see how the sausage is made and they're just grossed out. It's a little (laughs) bit true for me in in film that way. But because I I would say, and maybe it's because I work in film, so that definitely makes it different. But like, you know, when I see a film that blows me away, it still makes me feel the way a, you know, something like that used to. And the way that when I hear an album that blows my mind, it, it still has maybe it's a little bit of diminishing returns. You're chasing the dragon. You know, it's not it's not quite the same as as you know when you were closer to the source of your kind of you, you know young self, where every new idea blew your mind. You know, it's harder to be yeah, mind think, blown.
0: <laughs> I and I think for me too is that part of it is that in the last, you know, we're talking about a period of twenty years. Half of which um, we've, we've been in the streaming era. Mm-hmm. and that has moved a lot of what would be sort of newer independent voices into TV because they can yes. do an episode
1: 100%. but not be a showrunner. And
0: so you sort of you don't lose those voices, they just go to a different playground. Right. And so in many respects, I kind of feel like there are fewer choices in the world of conventional movies. Even if we're talking about streaming films, a lot of it seems like a lot of those ideas have gone to limited series and episodic TV.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I was having a conversation with someone recently. Who's your favorite millennial filmmaker and people in the industry who I talked to the first name on people's lists until his last film was often Ari Aster. Um, You know, I don't know if you saw his A twenty four movies, and you know, Bo is Afraid was his last one. But the Hereditary, my and, kids, uh,
0: my kids are enormous fans. Yes, of his work. I don't. They haven't seen a new one. Right, they're enormous fans. Um, that is Bo not afraid, mine, is Afraid traf- is a I, tough
1: slog. Yeah,
0: is it? I yeah, the not first afraid.
1: two are amazing, and and Bo is Afraid is just like, oh, I was so bummed because it's like the idea of Ari Aster and Joaquin Phoenix working together. I'm like, this is going to be the best movie next year. I know it. And then it came out and I was just like, oh, you know, <laughs> okay. But you know what? He'll, I, but that guy's not going anywhere. He's too incredible. He could be the no. Kubrick of no, his and, generation. And, and, uh,
0: I wish I could remember who said it, but um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an artist who had a quote about how, like, uh, when an artist makes a dud that neither of you understand why it's a dud, it means they're working towards something great that's different.
1: Yeah, the ambition of it was insane. And so it's like, so so I do think in the fullness of time, Bo is Afraid will be one of those movies that some people like defend with with their life, you know, and just say, no, this was the greatest piece of cinema, you know, of that decade or something. I'm just saying the actual experience of sitting there watching Joaquin Phoenix torture himself for three hours, uh, it was not a, a... there are entertaining parts of the first half for sure. And then it just is just a tough slog from there. For I'm, a, sure for I'm a dude
0: who who enjoys a Werner Herzog film. And I don't want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there you go.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, it's hard to force so yourself to watch that be,
0: one. Like, so then so then you look at it and you go, OK, it's whether it's Ari Aster or somebody else. I mean, the first person that comes to my mind, I know we talked about her the last time you were on, but Kelly Reichardt's the best filmmaker of the new millennium, in in my mind.
1: Oh, interesting! Uh, right, I forgot we talked about her. She's um, great. I, I mean, have seen three or four of hers. They're great.
0: She's yeah. somebody who every time she makes a new film, I'm excited. Every time I see it, I am intrigued by it, and it stays with me for days. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know what else you want from a filmmaker. Um,
1: I don't. Yeah, want she's very, movie. very independent, though, which isn't to say I don't agree with you that she's she's a very special filmmaker with her own unique lane and niche and everything. Right. But, but when you compare it to, you know, let's say in the nineties, you know, you're talking about Tarantino and, and, and uh, um. God, I don't know why Brian Singer just popped into my head, but sure. But, you know, Brian Singer, sure. the, the Coen brothers, Steven Soderbergh, the uh, early Spike, Paul Thomas Sp- Anderson stuff, you Spike know. Lee, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, I guess she's, Closest to being in Paul Thomas Anderson's lane, but it's like all those filmmakers make really entertaining and great movies. Her right. movies are really engaging, but I wouldn't recommend them to anyone, to any film lover. You know what they I mean? They are they're a, very specific, independent, uh, they're very have independent. A, they
0: have a slow burn quality to them. Yes, they are. They are the antithesis of the first five minute rule you were talking about. With Netflix a little bit. Hundred percent. And I am somebody who loves that if it delivers.
1: Yeah, character-driven, deliberately paced, you know, and yeah, Yeah.
0: Um, and and all really
1: good. Yeah, and she may be counted among this generation's or her generation's, you know, best filmmakers. I don't know, it'll be interesting to see. And I I don't don't
0: necessarily know that I know enough, you know, about this new new breed of filmmakers. I mean, I I know the, I guess what happens is I know the ones that sort of rise to household name.
1: Greta Gerwig, yep. You know, Greta Gerwig,
0: Ryan Johnson. I mean, I knew who they were before they, you know, Noah Baumbach. I knew who they were before they rose to that name. But like, now I'm not sure that I know who the next Greta Gerwig is going to be or that I know where the next um, Quentin Tarantino is going to come from. Yeah. Uh, You know, is it, my question is, is it just going to be somebody like Scott Frank who's going to make, you know, shows like that? And if so, that's fine. You know, but is it going to be somebody who's doing the Queen's Gambit, and then two years later they're doing something else? Or is it somebody who's going to make – are we looking too hard for an auteur, Matt?
1: Ah, all right. That's an interesting way of, of reframing it. Are you are you and I, obviously, the, the, I don't think the industry is looking hard and no, like, too I hard don't. for an no true They're industry... probably not looking hard enough. But, but by the way, Chris Nolan's a really amazing case of like total auteur filmmaker who is yes. also just bizarrely commercial. Even when he makes a three-hour movie about a physicist, it grosses a billion dollars. I mean, it's unbelievable that that movie has grossed $900 million. I can't believe it. I loved it. But I did uh, not think that was a movie for everybody um <laughs> you know um, I,
0: I was i i was totally blown away by it I, i've seen it twice in the theater and um just love it just was just was completely floored
1: incredible and and so the answer to your question is in my in my answer to your question personally, and I don't know what the industry thinks, but I think, you know, no, we're not looking too hard for an auteur because I do think auteurs, auteur filmmakers are the lifeblood of the film industry. You also need hacky filmmakers who can crank out hits, who can make, you know, Fast and Furious movies all day, you know, where you don't need it, you know, someone, you need a great technician to make those movies. You don't need an auteur, right? And that and that's okay. Great technicians are great technicians, you know, fine. Um, You need great auteurs to make great horror films. You need great auteurs to make great comedies. You need, you know, uh, great auteurs to make uh, great awards films, obviously. Um, And, and you just, you just need those people because it makes everybody else even just try to emulate their work, you know, so then even films that are trying for that but fall short still feel pretty good and exciting.
0: The uh, the sort of aspirational impact of somebody, say, like, whether we're talking about the Beatles or Tarantino, they yeah. sort of created this wave of new bands and new filmmakers in their wake.
1: You need and, that.
0: Yep. You, 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 yeah, you need somebody to, and in both of those cases, what you got was you got somebody who basically took things that existed within the art form, mixed them up like a jigsaw puzzle, and went, here you go. Yep. And showed it back to us in a way that we'd never seen before. And we yep. were fascinated by it.
1: I'd add Prince and Bowie to that as well. Like they're very much oh, they took absolutely. everything that came like, before and made it their own. Yeah.
0: Those are that's a those are two perfect additions. Yeah. Um and and again had that had that ubiquity, right? Yeah. We're not just talking about doing it brilliantly, we're talking about doing it brilliantly and doing it in a way that everybody accepts that it's brilliant.
1: Right, yeah. right. That somehow, yeah, and that's and that's obviously the rarest thing something that critics and audiences agree on you know that yeah. intersection is so exciting when there's and, that, just and the, in that, the case like,
0: of of all of these things that we're talking about have three or more decades of longevity to sit there and say this still matters this is still part of the public consciousness yeah you and know? the
1: next generation goes back and watches it or listens to it also i mean if you stop making art for more than just your own generation, you know what I mean? It's like if the next generation doesn't have a lot of stuff from your generation to love. Right. An industry begins to die, too. It can't just survive on the current stuff. The old stuff has to still be relevant, you know, or it. Um, you know, in some ways, that's why rock ultimately died. You know what I mean? It, it ceased right. to become relevant after a certain Point. Yeah. It doesn't because mean like I don't it, still love completely. a great new rock record, but you know.
0: Sure. But at the, but you know, when we look at it in reality, you know, um, it is essentially taking up the same space that jazz took up 40 years ago.
1: Very much so.
0: You know, it is a revered art form that is very specific and is liked by a subset of the public. And yeah. it, is, it is not part of the mass culture. And as much as you and I might want, you know, to be the ubiquity of guitar bands again. Yep. The days are probably numbered and they're not yeah, coming back.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I have said now for a long time that it's never going to... It's certainly, look, I still believe that it's never going to come back to anything like it was when, you know, everybody thought it was dying and then punk saved it. And then everybody thought it was dying and nirvana slash grunge, whatever you want to call it. Like that was a thing that made it vital and... You, you know, made it able to keep up with rap in the 90s, frankly. And then there was even rap rock in the 90s, which, boy, let's, you know. Oof. I can't even name my favorite rap rock artist. Um, I guess it would be the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys did a good job it's a little of combining bit like, rap and rock. It's a little bit like what Hank Hill has to say about Christian rock
0: when Bobby tries to be in a Christian band. And he says, Bobby, you're just ruining two things that people love
1: a lot. <laughs> So good. So good. Uh, Yeah. So, so it's, you know, but, but I do think there's going to be a wave it's starting to happen now in the 2020s. And most people don't realize like we're actually like, it's, it's kind of the early 2020s and it's kind of not anymore. We're almost at the end of four years of the 2020s by this point in the 80s. There were already big band, 80s bands, things that people think of as 80s bands. U2 was getting big. Duran Duran was huge. And I'm not saying anything about my feeling about these bands. I'm just saying there were already things known as 80s bands by 1983. Weirdly now, it's 2023, and there's almost no bands you can point to that are like 2020s bands that are big in any particular genre. I think the pandemic obviously has something to do with that. It kind of took a bite sure. out of the 2020s. That's that's probably the best explanation. But I'm starting to hear a lot of new guitar bands. For a while, it was just out of Australia, but now it seems to be tilting into, there's just some interesting new stuff. I guess a lot of the best new guitar stuff I'm hearing is out of Australia. and None of it has gotten Huge yet or anything, but I have a feeling there's going to be a big new rock band for the first time in a while soon. And I'm not exactly sure where it's going to come from. It could be UK, it could be Australia, it could be US or Canada, you know. Um, there's a lot of practitioners now that that have a big enough sound, a lead singer with a big enough voice that are kind of that seem to be modeling their they've got their own thing going on, but you can tell they've been listening to the right old records, you know, and kind of channeling it through their own, you know, they're different- I saw, records. I you was know. at,
0: uh, I was at Bourbon and Beyond last weekend in Louisville and all the, all the headliners are all old vets. And so- Yeah,
1: oh yeah. Whoops, you froze. I don't know if I'm frozen on your end, but you are. So
0: there were no, there were no new bands. I mean, second. Am I back, Matt?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're good. You're back.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. Um, Anyway, it was all, it was all older bands. I didn't have a problem with it, but it was all sort of like, actually that's not true. The the Sunday night was Bruno Mars.
1: Well, that's depressing. That doesn't help.
0: You (laughs) know, that's, but that's not rock and roll. I mean, He it was puts cool. on a
1: good Super Bowl halftime show, but that's not rock and roll. Yeah.
0: I watched three songs and then I went, well, an Uber won't get cheaper. Yeah. So we're going to go. Um, <laughs> right before that, though, I watched the 78-year-old Deborah Harry have 30,000 people in the palm of her fucking hand. And it was incredible. It was like going to church.
1: Wow. That's it's incredible amazing. that she's still performing at 78. Yeah. Chrissy Hine, too, is like 75 now. And her voice. Now.
0: Her voice is almost as good as ever. There were a couple things where she had to drop it down a little bit, and her backing band sang a falsetto to cover it. You couldn't tell. It didn't matter. It was like one note.
1: Matt, it
0: it was stunning. I thought, is she going to do the rap in the middle of
1: Rapture? Yeah. Is she going
0: to do it? Totally did it. Nailed it. Did the breakdown in the middle of Heart of Glass. Did that whole thing. Did did all of it. Kept up with all of it.
1: Wow. and like
0: just just fucking he kicked so much she kicked so much ass
1: and she then
0: Clem burke was was with her
1: and and uh chris steiner no chris is... chris
0: chris has got AFIB apparently and was not available so they had somebody else right the bass player for the evening was glenn matlock
1: oh nice from squeeze oh no from, from uh, sex no. pistols no from sex pistols yeah, yeah sex pistols yeah yeah, yeah
0: yeah so it was quite the rhythm yeah. section it was a. Uh, it was a heck of an evening but the other highlight for me that weekend was Duran Duran. Uh ah nice. So literally two bands that I've loved for 40 years that i had never seen. So to to get to your point there were no new bands that were part of the big bill like the headliners that were the newest bands were like the Killers and Black Keys.
1: Interesting. Yeah. You there know. You go. Yeah, no it's um, all it's you know that there there the, the were definitely there was definitely a, a last wave of big rock bands in the in the 2000s and that was yeah. it it was the, that first killers record was one of the last ones out the gate pretty the much the strokes uh this yeah the strokes uh arcade fire uh oh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, i you know coldplay obviously yeah. is the biggest of all of them you For know sure. and it's like so it was that there was that last wave you know and nothing since then that has right. anything like that level of popularity uh,
0: the one young band, and I didn't really pay attention much when they were playing, but we were there for it. The one young band that everybody seemed kind of keen on was Inhaler.
1: I don't know Inhaler. Inhaler Ooh.
0: is uh, Bono's kid. No. It's
1: Bono's,
0: yeah, it's Bono's That's son.
1: That's almost annoying. Because his daughter yeah, is also so becoming a big when, actress and it's just the Nepo baby thing.
0: Right, so the one sort of new thing that people were keen on was a Nepo baby thing. And so it really tainted it for me. And I was like, oh,
1: maybe it's great, but God. Yeah. It, by the like, way.
0: Bono's kid, like if it was Larry Mullen's kid, I would be more excited about it.
1: Right, I know what you mean. Look, I'm I'm willing to try it. I'm gonna listen. I can't believe sure. I haven't heard about it. You know, I'll I'll give him a shot. You know, look, Bob Dylan's kid, Jacob, he wrote some legitimately good songs on those early Wallflowers records. I'm not a sure fan, did. but he had some talent, you know, yeah. obviously nothing like his dad, but like, okay, solidly above average, you know, and then absolutely. And then, uh, uh, you know, Jeff Buckley, obviously, uh, you know, there are, there are some examples of people's kids oh. who actually, you know, um uh Steve Earle's son Justin Towns Earl uh may he rest in peace uh wrote yeah. some incredible songs and records yeah, he did. um god the Jason Isbell song about him is so devastating oh. and the one on the new record I can't oh, even it's listen so to good. that song it's so painful it's it's, it's so, so good
0: there are there are a couple of heartbreakers on that new record that are yeah yeah uh yep. that and um was it White Beretta is that what it's called?
1: Yeah, I can't yeah. remember. There is another one where, like, yeah, that's you um the lyrics and you. That's yeah. a
0: that's a song that, that traffics in very much the same uh, story as uh, "Brick" by Ben Folds.
1: Ah, right.
0: That it's that story. Um, and so you're always kind of like, like I, the first thing I said to Kimmy when she played it for me is, I was like, you realize that like it has to live up to this standard and it's not going to do that, right? Like, yeah. you have to see it on it, like, because I can't see it on that level. Yeah. Um. Before I let you go, let's let's talk about one of your favorite songwriters and mine, um, a, a man who is sadly no longer with us, named David Berman.
1: Ah, uh, yes.
0: This, this is when I reached out to you was when you published that piece on 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 that Purple Mountains record. And um, yeah, just just talk to me about your experience with Silver Jews and specifically with that record.
1: Sure. So so look that that piece came from the heart for sure because I. I was an even bigger pavement fan than I was a guided by voices fan in the nineties. And then it's kind of, you know, now they're both like way, way up there in all, you know, all time, all, you know, indie rock alternative rock bands for me, they're probably, you know, they might even be the top two. Um, But I found out about silver Jews because of pavement and just kind of knowing, Oh, Malcomus plays on this record and co-wrote some of the songs. Let me check this out. What a weird thing to call your band, silver Jews, you know, and I'm Jewish. And I was like, you know, uh, you know that that even makes me uncomfortable. Like you know, it's it's kind of a you know, it's like a, okay, let me let me check this out. I really liked the first Silver Jews a lot. I it I couldn't tell to what extent. You know, it's the first Silver Jews sounds a little bit like a pavement record, and I couldn't tell whether that was just because Malcolmus was on it and co wrote some of the songs, or because David Berman was trying to piggyback on pavement success and trying to sound like them. You know, but by the time I got to their third record, American Water, I was like, this guy is an insanely talented songwriter in his own right, completely independent of his friendship relationship with with Stephen Malcolmus, you know. And now that that record holds up even better over time, like it's a classic album. It's a classic album, just period, full stop. Anybody who's a music fan, if you listen to that record and you pay attention to the lyrics, I don't know how you come away with anything, but like, oh, that's that's a classic record. It's just I
0: remember. I remember the first time I heard Smith and Jones forever.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. And the opening line. And And
0: I, um, I remember going, Oh, this is, this is interesting. And then I heard the line, the alleys are the footnotes of the Avenue. And I went, what the fuck is happening in my ears right now?
1: Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: I, I immediately went, I just was like full focus. And then I went, where do I get more of this?
1: Yeah, because when you're if a song can like
0: this, I want it all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, and look, and obviously being a songwriter yourself, you know, you know, everybody's working with the same, you know, number of notes and chords and whatever. And some people find really interesting original things to do with those. Um, uh, obviously, you know, it goes it, it goes without saying, but it's you know, it's rare that there's a band or songwriter that really has an original sound so often wherein a songwriter can differentiate themselves is the, is the writing itself the actual you know the lyrics and it's so rare that rock lyrics rise above the sort of cliches you know songs about cars and girls and heartbreak and you know whatever and and when you hear it it's just so thrilling you know it's like look Stephen Malcolmus is a really sort of oddball writer where he likes just the sound of language and the way words combine it doesn't always make sense Pollard does the same thing but boy sometimes a line will seep through and you'll go oh this isn't he's not just this isn't scrambled eggs here like he's there's there's a a a purpose and an intent behind these these words and he may be the only one who knows what they are on this line and this line or this verse but I, I think I get what he's on about here And Berman, man, he's just one of those guys. He's just one of the most original writers, was one of the most original writers. And, you know, so I was sort of all in from there. And then I started to, you know, and then when he went five years without making a record, the article started to come out about his, you know, he had struggled with depression and being institutionalized and suicide attempts. And I was like, oh man, uh uh-oh, you know, I'm worried about this guy. I don't know if he's going to make it. And You know, I loved that Malcolmus and a lot of other musicians rallied around him and helped to make a record. I can't remember whether it was Lookout or the one before it or, uh, uh, you know, but like never made a bad record in his career. I think there are six Silver Jews and one Purple Mountains. And it's like none of them are bad. Most of them are very good or great. And then then he goes a decade without making a record and drops the best record, you know drops like a nuclear bomb in 2019. I mean, that had to be the best record of that year, sir. Or, well, the guided by voices albums that year were so great that, that those were up there for me too, but it was like (laughs) the best of Bob that year and the purple mountains records. Like I could listen to just that stuff for like months, you know, and be, and, and be fulfilled. And obviously, even though, I knew how harrowing some of the lyrics were on that record. Somehow I didn't see his suicide coming, even though it like the whole record is a suicide note. I mean, so clearly the one about his mother and the, I mean, you can't, it's painful. It was painful for me to listen to for a little while afterwards. And when I was writing that piece, I went back and listened to the record and just was reminded again, like this is, you know, that's probably one of the, dozen best albums of the 2010s of like the decade you know oh, yeah. I, you know American Water there were so many incredible records in the 90s that American Waters in the top 10 percent for me but like her, that Purple Mountains record because the 2010s was just not as amazing a decade for me like right. music wise and I think even for the generation who had to grow up who had to be teenagers in that decade they're just like We got ripped off and they're listening to their dad's music you know they just there's all these articles about how young people are not listening to the music from the 2010s that's not what they're listening to when they you know because streaming allows them access to everything and they're like oh sure we grew up on dog shit um so that makes the purple the purple mountains record stand out even more you know um with things like the john murray record i don't know if you've ever heard the graceless age have we ever talked about him or about that no Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You're going to thank me for this one. And this is a tough one. I've become friendly with John. He's an unbelievable guy. Um, he was born and raised in in um, um, Mississippi. He was adopted by the direct descendants of... Um, greatest Southern author who ever lived. Oh my God, Sound and Fury. William Faulkner. Yeah, William Faulkner. So uh, he was raised by the sort of like great grandkids, but like the sibling of the, you know, close enough. Like he's a, you know, uh, um, so he grew up obsessed with Faulkner, even though he's not related by blood to Faulkner. He moves to San Francisco, gets into the music scene there. He's married with a young kid gets hopelessly addicted to heroin, um, uh, dies, actually died on the corner of 16th and Mission, uh, was brought back to life like five minutes later in the back of an ambulance, so didn't suffer any brain damage from it. You know, well, not just apparently. He wrote what, what, what in the UK He's bigger in the UK than he is here. Most people don't know about him here, incredibly, even though he's an American songwriter. And he has three or four albums out now, but the one the one he will always be known for, uh, to the extent he's known for anything, is The Graceless Age. It was uh, number eight or 10 on Mojo's list of the best albums of, of 2013. And nobody heard it here. But when I saw it on that list, I ordered it on import or something. You couldn't even get it here. So I actually have one of the rare CDs of that. Um, it's not available for streaming yet, but I've talked to John and we're literally, I'm helping him like figure out the best way to do it. He's either gonna put it up on Bandcamp. He didn't have the rights to the record for a while. He has it now. He owns the rights to the record. So you the only way you could hear it now is on YouTube. Isn't that crazy? In Europe, they can stream it. Here, here oh it's available God. for streaming. And you're yeah. helping him make this happen. Oh yeah, I'm I, I'm working on it. Like that's kind of how we met in a weird way. It's a long it's a it's a long story. Also through film, there's an incredible documentary coming out about him that I'm help trying going to try to help him sell. I've been talking to the producer, director, and John about. That's how I really met John through the film, and he oh, had seen how big a fan I was of his because I wrote I wrote a Substack piece about. Did I write a subtext piece just about the Graceless Age, or maybe I just put it on the list of um, you know, 10 best albums you've never heard, or something something like that? So there's oh, a song this on one it.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. Oh, good. Well, there's a song called Little Colored Balloons on it. That that no joke, uh, there was a UK poll and it was voted number one on the best songs ever written. <laughs> the number one wow. song of all time was John Murray's Little Colored Balloons. Which wow. is the story of, well, it tells, a, it's it's nine minutes long. Uh, It's, you know, for sure, it, for me, it would be in the top 1% of every song ever written. There's no such thing as the best song ever written. And I'm not going to pick it over like a Rolling Stone or like, you know, certain Dylan songs. And I don't know that he would either. But it's right. it's a song, first of all, the whole record's great. But Little Colored Balloons sort of stands out as like, wait, 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 what? you know i just that it's just it'll it'll strike you on first listen as one of the best things you've ever heard wow. and it is and it is the true story of um uh his wife leaving him because of his heroin addiction his death and being brought back to life and you know ultimately the whole album tells the story of then his wife coming back to him they've since divorced and he's now engaged to someone else but um to a woman who wow. works with Doctors Without Borders, but and he, and he lives in Kilkenny in Ireland. He left the U.S. because of Trump and other things. Holy shit. This yeah. is an
0: amazing story, Matt.
1: He's oh, yeah. I mean, like I I remember saying at the time where when I picked The Graceless Age my favorite album that year, like a million miles ahead of everything else that. It's one of those records that you know the artist will never make a better record than, but that's okay because they've made one of the greatest records of all time. And so that's, you know, it's it's okay that they're never going to really be able to equal it or top it. I, of course, haven't said that to John. He's made two records since then. One was produced by Michael Timmons of the Cowboy Junkies. And yes. that one is a good record. It's a very, I would say, a solid, you know, if Graceless Age is a 10, which it is. For me, and I think will be for you too. Uh Short History of Decay, it's called is maybe an eight or eight point five. I mean, it's a very good album. Just, you know, if if that had been the first thing I heard of his, I would have bought his next record. Then PJ Harvey's producer, uh John Parrish, produced his last yes. record. And um, some of it I love, some of it I love other versions of the songs, like some of the choices they made together about like how a song would sound. I liked the demos. John has even shared demos with me of like, it's it's very cool as I've gotten to know him. He's totally different than I imagined he would be. If you look at live clips of him on YouTube, you'll just think he's like, You first of all, you'll think he's still addicted to drugs. Second of all, uh, uh, you know, because he's just, his, he's got a very flat affect uh, uh, when you watch clips. and And you'll also think, boy, that guy's no fun. Um, turns out he's hilarious. He's personable. Like you would like him. You would, he'd like, I can't wait to meet him in person. I almost met him when I was up in Scotland recently dropping my son off at of college, but it just didn't work out timing wise um, because he wasn't, he wasn't in Ireland at the time he was in the UK and he's like, Oh, I'll take a train up to, you know, let's meet somewhere in Scotland. And, you know, I was like, Oh my God, I'd love to, you know, if he had been in Ireland, I might've flown to Dublin to meet with him there. But, um, we have, we've just met over Zoom, and um, uh, yeah, if, you get, if the best thing that comes out of this uh, conversation is that you hear that record, uh, then, then my, my, work is, oh. my work here is done.
0: I'm, I'm heading over to YouTube tonight, my friend. Don't worry. Yes, <laughs> I can't wait. I, I'm super excited. Um, I'm really excited that you're going to get this so that people can actually hear without having to go to YouTube.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Oh my God. It's so awful when you tell people about the record and they're like, how can I hear it? And you're basically like, you can't. And they're like, Oh, I right. just love that record because, because I can't hear it. And it's like, no, 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 you could hear it. When I first bought it, I bought it. I have the CD in my room right now. I can, I can show you. In fact, I I'm run and go get it. <laughs> um, after we're done, I'll, I'll show you. Um, uh, You know, but uh, it's, it's, I heard a story that John has told me is not true, so I don't even know why I'd bother repeating it. But I I guess his wife had something to do with the financing of the record. Um, And I had heard that she got it in the divorce and that that's why it wasn't available, that she was basically burying the record. He said, no, 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 no. I control the rights. I just haven't figured out yet. Like, I think he's trying to figure out how to leverage it and its growing popularity and acclaim into the right sort of either new record deal, like I told him he should be with anti, you know, who have Joe Henry and Tom Waits and stuff like that. That's where he belongs. And, you know, one of the chapters in my book is about Joe Henry. He couldn't believe that when he found that out, he was like, Oh, my God, I want Joe Henry to produce my next record. I've met him before. I'm like, if I can help in any way, John, nothing, I could die and go to heaven if I, you know, if I, if you want me to talk to Joe and say John Murray wants you to produce his next album, but he's too shy to ask or whatever, like oh, I don't wow. want that. Um, so I would love those guys to work together. Oh my god, because Joe Henry would know exactly how to get the right sound out of him. He's got like a rain dogs kind of album in him, or or he could e- equally make a record that's more in the Joe Henry lane. Um, it would just depend what the two of them cooked up together. i boy, I'd love to hear it um at any rate um uh he controls the rights to the record and he's just you know i said like at least put it up on band camp so every time i tell right. someone about the record they can go buy your record and you'll get the money like what is it with Bandcamp? they get it the artist gets half or something or maybe oh more. no it's more
0: it's more than that it's, it's um, like 80
1: percent or something 85 it? it's 85
0: 85%. yeah it's an 85 15 split
1: I'm like John just like I could get 500 people in my Substack to buy that album tomorrow if you put it up on on Bandcamp and he'd get 85% of the money. And you know, yeah. most people on Bandcamp they sell it for 10 bucks a pop. Great. You know, yeah. so that, you know, 500 copies would be would be 5000 bucks. I mean, it's not That's right. crazy or anything, but it's probably, you know, more money than he made off that record, you know, at, at the no, time. No, but everybody so,
0: could everybody could use 5 grand.
1: Yeah, everybody could use 5 grand. And and yeah, and I I don't know what kind of money he made in the U- UK off the album or with whatever advance he got on the John Parrish record. Cause I think he might've gotten an advance there. Um, you know, and he, he's written something for, he does some, maybe some composing work in the UK or something, okay. you know, maybe gets a little like film or TV work out there. Cause he, he really has serious. How old a guy is he met? He's 44. I want to say, I think he's 44 okay. now. And so he was, you know, 33 or something when The Graceless Age came out. And it was his second album technically, but really his first. He had done an album with a guy named Bob Frank of Murder Ballads, and that is available. But like, they're not all, I think some of them are covers and some are originals and they co-wrote. Like, The Graceless Age is pure, unadulterated John Murray. (laughs) And it's it's like his first solo, solo album. Okay.
0: Um, And it's... And that's the one... did he self-produce that then
1: that's a no so there's a sad story there his heroin buddy and music buddy and best friend in san francisco was the drummer from american music club a guy named tim mooney yeah who either od'd or committed suicide shortly after the release of the graceless age or right before it so tim mooney produced the album And John has basically told me, like, I'll never have another collaborator like that. Like, he just knew how to bring out the best in the songs. And he shared with me the demos for The Graceless. Oh, no, you know what it was? That's not right. Tim Mooney's mix of the album was not the final mix. Uh, John Murray, to his credit, had it remixed. And the remix is so much better than the original mix that was never released, which I've heard. (laughs) Um, i so obsessed with the album, am I? Um, John shared it John offered to share it with me and I'm like uh yeah I want to hear the original mix I was worried it was going to be better it wasn't better the the mix that got <laughs> released was was like wow this now I know how much difference a mix can make um oh it's huge huge you couldn't understand the lyrics clearly enough in the in the other mix and it, the um and is, do you
0: think John is uh is like is somebody like Dave Berman in that he kind of creates these like is he creating these lyrical worlds that are totally unique? Is that part of what the allure is, or is it mostly sonic?
1: Let's see. Good, good question. And I'm sorry, I didn't, I did not imagine us going off on this long tangent. Dude, here. it's right. fine. It's, it's what happens. It's worth it. You never know where a conversation is going to lead. That's right. Um, he falls in more of the tradition. I think he'd be flattered by this and maybe he's got this kind of punk side to him where when, when sometimes uh, live, he plays very punky versions of the songs from that record and, you know, he screams and yells into the microphone and stuff like that. But the album itself feels more like it's in the tradition of classic 70s singer songwriters. Like it's a little more like a, you know, he's in a, 70s Tom Waits space, or like a
0: Jackson with with a
1: little Dylan with a little less Jackson Brown because his vocals aren't like that. Um, The first song, when you hear it, there's a little, little nod to knocking on heaven's door in it a little 70s, little 70s Dylan, little 70s Tom Waits. A little, there's a lot of stuff I hear in it, but it's its own. That album is such a standalone thing, but I would put it next to those kind of 70s classic 70s singer songwriter records in the way that certain joe henry's belong there in in my mind oh sure okay um but you know not all joe henry records obviously some of his records are more jazzy and some of them are more country rock and some of them are more you know just his own particular thing Certainly and some of John's them are writings. just
0: recorded in train stations Wait, what's that i said and some of them are just recorded in train stations there you go yeah, <laughs> actually, I i mean, part of it is that I'm an enormous fan of Billy Bragg as well, but I love that record. I love that train record. That Shine yes, of Light record's really
1: yeah. Great. Yeah, it's, uh, uh the, you know, Joe as a producer blows me away. I mean, the range of people he's worked with. I don't even think I knew until I started researching my chapter on him that one of the Amy Mann records was produced by him. Like, I just hadn't noticed. Like, I obviously had not gone through the CD booklet and been like, Joe Henry produced this album. I think it's the Smilers album or something. uh, uh, That
0: sounds right, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, he's just, he's produced such an interesting range. I mean, obviously he's most famous for the Southern soul artists he worked with, but he's done, you know, great work with with so many people. The the Billy Bragg, he did a couple of Billy Braggs, right? And uh, one of them I I really love, not the train station one, the, the other one. Or, or did, did he, he
0: produce one of those other records? Did he produce uh, "Mr. Love and
1: Justice"? Not that one. I I do. I like that one a lot. Uh, I,
0: "Tooth and Nail" maybe.
1: "Tooth and Nail," I think. I think he okay. produced "Tooth and Nail." All
0: right. I guess. Okay. So that that's interesting. There's one that I didn't read the CD booklet on because uh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, I think I think he did. I'll have to, you know. We can double check after always, after this. It but, it but yeah, has, I. As my kids can
0: only fudge it. Yeah, <laughs> we always juggle it. Um,
1: yep, for sure,
0: Matt. This was this was an absolute blast. Thank you uh, so yeah. much for sitting down and just I love how there's no introduction. We just jump right in. Let's just start nerding out and talking about shit. This is
1: always a pleasure. We'll have to make it a trifecta and you know play on a third one for down down the line or or, or more. You know I'm happy to. Oh do yeah, these. we'll
0: just make it a make it a regular thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Make it a regular thing. Is that Junior Panthers T-shirt you're wearing a Sloan reference? It sure is. Is it a Sloan yeah. t-shirt? All right, there we it go. It is, it is. I don't
0: know how well you can see the back, but...
1: Uh, I, oh, how awesome. Yes, I can. Yeah, it was for when I,
0: they did the 20th anniversary of... Uh, of uh, oh, What the hell's the name of that record?
1: Why did I not go to that? Uh, yeah, what is that? the, the uh, their third um, uh, A chord, a chord, chord, something. One chord to for, another. One chord to
0: another, thank you. Yes. Um, uh, Yeah, I've seen them, God, five or six times. It's always great.
1: So It never
0: disappoints. They're just, um, they're like a machine. Yep. I adore them. And uh, they put a new record out, and I inevitably love it. Yeah. Sometimes I love it a lot. Sometimes I love it a little, but I always love it. Yeah. I'm never, ever like, oh, another
1: Sloan record? No. no, I'm excited. The last two have been really good. The one before that had too many songs on it, and... You know how they each took a side? I didn't like that. Yeah, Commonwealth. Yeah, Commonwealth is like the first half's pretty good and then it's like, rut row. You know, you can tell they put like the guy who didn't have enough songs for the record, they put his side on. Yeah. 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 Um, His songs
0: are always weird anyway. Yeah. Uh, Not that that's a bad thing, but the whole side of them is maybe not what you need. Not ideal. I did, by the way, I, I don't think I ever responded. I did get your email about the house show too. I totally get it. Oh, yes. I totally get it, I totally get it. Um, I have a couple of other spots that I might be able to land. So hopefully we can still connect and you can come out.
1: If you are um, anywhere within an hour of LA, I will come out for it. Okay, that would be amazing. I, I, I will do so it for I'm
0: sure. Not, and if you know anybody that might be interested, um send me a connect i mean there's no there's no pressure but if you think of somebody sure i mean basically matt all you got to do is give me enough room to set up um i'm going to have a couple of buddies with me so it's actually going to be more than just me so it's going to be kind of special right um i have two two of my bandmates two of my bandmates are going to fly out to vegas and stay with me for a week and a half and we're going to go all the way up to seattle
1: oh wow cool
0: and um so it'll be fun. it'll be a little acoustic trio. So um it should Ooh, be great.
1: I gotta give this some thought. There I must know someone in the greater Los Angeles area or Southern California in general where who would who would want to do that has the right setup for that. Um Matt,
0: even if you knew somebody who owned a bookstore or a coffee shop that had a space where we could throw twenty five people.
1: Yep. Yeah, yep, yep. That I, would be amazing. I hear you. Uh, let me give that some thought. I, I would, I would love that if I can help facilitate this in any way. I'd love to.
0: That'd be superb. And I do have a couple of angles. I'll keep working, but just if you if you get a hit, let me know. Will do. Um,
1: I love you, that uh, you're doing it, by the way, and that it's been going so well. I mean, you've played like fifteen, twenty shows now, or something, right? Or like it was.
0: Yeah, it was fifteen on the first run, and then um, this one will be god it's like 30 whoa it's like yeah i think it's 30 because it's six weeks yolo <laughs> <laughs> you know what as stupid as that is it's absolutely true it's kind of true like,
1: you know if not now when you know it's like say,
0: yeah this is not a dress
1: rehearsal yeah right exactly this is what you want to do you should do it you're doing yeah. what you want to do and you're just right. finding a way to make it work you know it's I, like
0: yeah incredible. thanks for the subscription by the way
1: Oh uh, my my pleasure! It's uh, very appreciated. You know, I I am incredibly sympathetic and and you know my whole career <laughs> yeah, in, you are. in a lot of ways is about supporting um, artists hope, and helping.
0: God, I hope you can get back to work soon. Yeah,
1: <laughs> me too.
0: Me too. I really I, I have a i have a friend who's a podcaster who all he's also the uh, he's the warm up act for stand up tonight, mm-hmm. and that's a nice chunk of change. And he sure. makes a pretty good living. He used to be a serious XM host, but he makes a pretty good living. Yep. As a podcaster, but not the kind of living he used to make hosting a serious XM show nationally sure. five days a week.
1: Oh my god. Um, yeah, I can only imagine. And so
0: it's like, you know, I'm I'm literally like, I've never had a vested interest like this before. I'm like, I just want my buddies to go back to work, man.
1: Yeah. Yep. And
0: it it sucks.
1: It's it's weird times. Look, the whole Across the country. I mean, obviously there's the auto worker stuff and the kind of, there's a lot of yeah. labor unrest in general. And it's because everybody's getting squeezed. There's there's, there's yeah. something going on. I mean, I don't like to believe in conspiracies and I don't think it really is a conspiracy. I think it's just, you know, it's the late stage capitalism thing.
0: It's the cult. Yes, yeah, the culture of late stage capitalism. That's absolutely yeah. what it is.
1: That's speaking what it is. Late, it's speaking not-
0: of late stage capitalism, um, you ever been to a big time music festival? Because I went for the first time last weekend
1: oddly the yeah the that was your that's I'm surprised to hear that was your first one I've only been I've only been to one the um not Lollapalooza um the the one in Palm Springs in Palm Desert um
0: oh uh Coachella
1: Coachella uh quick quick story we can maybe we can end on this note I when my oldest son who's now 20 was born He couldn't have been more than six months old. And I really wanted to go to Coachella because it was the year that Radiohead was headlining and the Pixies reunion was happening. And on the Saturday night, it was gonna be the Pixies playing like a full set followed by Radiohead playing a full set. And my wife knew that like, okay, I don't wanna let a child, you know, get in the way. So literally we go down to Palm Springs. Um, She stays in the room. I went by myself to, to, you know, she brought the baby, you know, and, and I just went and just spent, you know, like six hours, you know, sort of like three hours before the Pixies came on and another three hours of Pixies and Radiohead. And just, yeah, it was it was great. Mostly I'm not interested in like giant crowd stuff. I saw you two play an arena. I've been to some arena shows, but like festival stuff, I tend to not like it because I don't like kind of like giant crowd. Like I prefer small club stuff. You know, that's right.
0: Me too, and that's why or medium
1: this was, size. You know, this was um
0: yeah I'll do a theater um, yeah, but like I don't I don't love the stadium and arena shows. I, I try. I mean, I went to as you and I talked about the last time we got together. I went to that Cure show. That's that's the exception to the rule. Oh yeah. Um, because that's how you have to see the cure and you're yeah, going to go. Right. Yep. Um, but what I, what I was kind of amazed by was how secondary the music can be at an event like that if you want it to be.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Because it's all happening at one end. And the idea is you're supposed to be entertained the entire time you're there. Yeah. Now the way they're entertaining you is the $17 cocktails. Yeah. But um yeah. but the idea is there are places for you to hang out and there are tents and there are places to charge your phone and like there's just it's a little city. Yep. And it was it was fun. Like I got like I told you, I got to see Blondie. It was fucking incredible.
1: Yeah, that's really cool.
0: And so it was wonderful to get that. I don't know that I would run right out to repeat that experience. It's not that I would avoid it right but it's but it's super expensive yeah and it's very much a i got to see this person so it's worth it yeah like you're not gonna have quote unquote an experience at coachella or urban and beyond that you would have if you went to go see that band headlined at a place that holds 1500 people in your town yeah yeah you know and so as a, as a guy who goes to live music strictly for the experience, the connection of live music, that left me wanting. I enjoyed right. the rest of it more than I expected to. Huh, and I got to see some stuff I wouldn't have seen otherwise. But again, I don't know, especially for the expense, I don't know that I would run right out and do it again. But I'm yeah. glad I did it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah. Great to see you, Matt. Great to see you too. Um, Thank well so and,
0: much for your time. And, and uh, well. I'll see you soon.
1: Awesome. We'll be in touch
0: take care uh, be well buddy bye-bye take care. Bye. there he goes author film producer amazingly nice human being matt berenson thank you so much to matt for being here thank you to you for being here make sure you head on over to the Substack. there's stuff coming out every day right now you gotta go catch up I, I can't do this forever, so sooner or later you're gonna get a break. But for right now, you gotta run with me. I'm at a Pollard-esque pace. It's just how it is, my friends. Make sure you go over and leave me a message at uh, speakpipe.com/slash what am I making. Let me know what you want to see/slash hear/slash do on the show. Send me an email, whatamimakingblog at gmail.com. Make sure you are liking, rating, and reviewing this pod wherever you get it. And last, but certainly not least, my friends, this show runs on your paid subscriptions. Please go over to whatamimaking.substack.com. Sign up for a paid subscription today. It keeps this train rolling, and it would mean the world to me. I'm so glad to have you here. I'll see you over on the blog. Until next time, my friends. Be the very best version of yourselves you can be, and I'll leave you with that. Now, that there was some real pandering motivational. Bullshit speak for an outro on a podcast. From Mattis C. and his ADHD, goddammit.